All right. So another story I want to tell you about Mike Lindell is that you always see him with a cross on. First time I ever saw him it was in Washington, D.C. at the National Prayer Breakfast, he had a big cross on. He is a Christian, and it's great because he's not afraid of his faith. And one of the other things you can get beyond the 100 products that he has, like the slippers that I've talked about, or the small pillows for your back if you're sitting too much in a chair, is you can get some religious pillows. Now, here's one. This has to do with Noah, Noah and the Ark. And on the back side, they have stories about Noah and the Ark. Now, some people may be offended by that because they think it's politically incorrect to talk about your faith or politically incorrect to call yourself a Christian. I think it's terrific in this day because the world has gone to hell and we all know that. And it's good to know that even if you have grandchildren, you have young children, you want to get their morals and their values in order. You can always and it's not just Noah that Mike Lindell is pushing. He's pushing all the biblical stories on these small pillows for kids. So if you're interested in having your kids introduced to some values and some Christian values and Christian beliefs and the stories in the Bible, go ahead and order any of these biblical pillows for Mike Lindell. Now, how do you get them? You get them by the promo code CDM. That's us. So just put in promo code CDM and you can get a biblical pillow for your grandchildren or your young children. And now let's get to our guests. So today on American Conversations, special guest, a man I, I've come to admire, um, Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Welcome to American Conversations. Thanks, Christine. Your uh, story is... Not unusual, because I've been speaking to a lot of doctors, but you certainly have taken a stand. And uh, as a doctor, you spoke out and chose not to take a vaccination while teaching at the University of California at Irvine. Tell us what happened. So back in, it would have been July of uh, 2021, mm -hmm. I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal arguing that university vaccine mandates, which were starting to roll out at that point, were unethical. They contradicted basic principles of medical ethics going back to the Nuremberg Code that was developed in the wake of World War II and the atrocities of, of the Nazi doctors. And the central doctrine of that was the doctrine of informed consent, the right, the right to decide what goes into your body, the right to refuse a medical intervention. Um, and so I, was, I, I took a public stand against the idea of COVID vaccine mandates pretty early on before a lot of the mandates were finalized. So at that point, my own institution, I was a professor in the School of Medicine at University of California, as you mentioned, at UC Irvine. And teaching ethics. That's right, yeah. So I spent about half my time doing work in the Department of Psychiatry um, and you know, teaching, supervision, clinical work. And the other half of my time, I directed the medical ethics program, including the ethics committee and ethics education for the medical students. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I was an academic physician and a, and a bioethicist. And, uh, and that's why I felt like, you know, when this policy was being rolled out, I needed to say something. And in fact, I was on the committee that formulated pretty much all the other pandemic related policies for the university. Um, they had representatives from all five of the UC hospitals on this committee that created a ventilator triage policy that created policies for how to allocate the vaccines early on when there was a limited supply of them. Uh, so sensitive, sensitive, you know, pandemic mm -hmm. policies. And, and yet when it came time to 
deliberate on the vaccine policy, there actually wasn't really any meaningful deliberation. The policy came from the top down. Uh, you know, our committee wasn't really involved in that. And uh, so, so I, I felt that I had to stand up and at least make a public case that I thought this wasn't a good idea. When the policy was finalized, um, I had already had COVID back in 2020, had recovered, my family got it, they all made a good recovery. And the evidence was clear at that point that the natural immunity from uh, having had the infection was superior to the immunity that you get from the vaccine. So we are already seeing a decline in vaccine efficacy, especially against infection and transmission. We were seeing early, early warning signals that there may be safety issues with these vaccines that did not necessarily come up in the published uh, information from the clinical trials. So I, I had concerns about um, the idea of people with natural immunity getting, getting vaccinated. Uh, so people in my situation, I could see no empirical evidence that vaccines would improve my immunity. Um, and there was, there were at least a half a dozen studies at that point suggesting that actually your risk of side effects is, is even higher if you've already had COVID. So we're talking about an intervention that's not going to help me. It's not going to improve my immunity um, that may you know, put me at risk of adverse effects. It's not going to help anyone else because it was clear by then that the vaccines did not stop infection or transmission. This is a clear case in which you know, I and others that were similarly situated should have been able to exercise our right of informed consent and our right of informed refusal. So did you, I decided- that, Aaron, pardon me for interrupting for a second. Yeah. Do you know at that point in time about the VAX injured? Were you fully aware of the scope of the VAX injured? Not, not to the degree that I am now, but mm -hmm. I, I certainly was seeing the early safety signals in VAERS and there were many of them. The only one that was followed up on rigorously was myocarditis. So that's the one that we hear discussed frequently, uh, which is good. It's good that it, uh, you know we're actually paying attention to that now, at least some attention to that now. But there were many other safety signals having to do with autoimmune conditions, right. uh, gastrointestinal conditions, neurological conditions. None of these have actually been rigorously followed up on by the CDC. Well, they, they haven't. They Let me put it this way. I can tell you having interviewed a lot of VAX injured and put them on camera um, starting last year, that in fact, the FDA, the NIH, the NIAID, and the CDC are all informed about the vascular and neurological injuries. They have spoken to VAX injured, and they have yet to do what they yeah. did for the cardio injuries, come out publicly and put the warnings on, even though there's a plethora of evidence. Yeah, no, it's very concerning. And I think uh, in some ways, the the most alarming evidence comes from a particular statistic that you cannot game and that you cannot spin, and that's all cause mortality. Uh, how many total people have died compared to our baseline expectations and the data that we're seeing both from insurance companies and now I've taken a look at um, age stratified data from the, the CDC and we're seeing a 40% plus rise in all cause mortality over the last year in mm -hmm. working age adults, 18 to 64, individuals who are not at high risk of dying from COVID and, and anywhere between two thirds and three quarters of those excess deaths were not COVID 
deaths and not COVID related deaths. So something is causing a massive spike in mortality uh, in a population that was not at a high baseline risk of COVID related mortality. And I mean, this should be this should be sending off alarm bells left and right in our public health establishment. And the fact is they, they're continuing to ignore this, um, which is very, very concerning. And, um, it, you know, it, it, it's taken insurance actuaries to draw our, you know, life insurance companies to draw our attention to this uh, because the, the epidemiologists at the CDC who should be sounding uh, the alarm are, are not, at least they're not doing so publicly. Um, so I, I was, at that time, I was aware that there were likely more safety issues with these vaccines than um, the, the general public was being made aware of. Since then, I have also spoken to many vaccine injured individuals. I've continued to take a look at the emerging data, uh, you know, around these vaccines, at least the data that, you know, you can get your hands on that's not being suppressed. And so my, my concerns regarding vaccine safety have actually increased since then. But back then, I wasn't making an argument based on, on safety. I was just making an argument based on, um, on efficacy and need and based on ethical principles. So I ended up filing a lawsuit in federal court challenging the university's vaccine mandate on behalf of people like me that had infection-induced immunity, basically making an equal protection argument that we knew during the Delta wave immunity from a prior infection was 95 to 99% effective. Right. Best case scenario, let's compare that to the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. The peak of vaccine efficacy for the J and J, the data that the company submitted to the FDA for approval showed a 67% efficacy against infection. And then it started to decline again at about four months. So why was I, who had 95 to 99% protection against reinfection, uh, not allowed back on campus, not allowed to work, whereas someone who took the J&J vaccine and was less protected was allowed back mm -hmm. on campus? So for purposes of my legal argument, all I had to say was my immunity is equally good uh, you know, as if compared not, to the vaccine. If not better than somebody. But in fact... In fact, we know now it's very, very clear that it's better, especially right. after Om Omicron, where the two-dose regimen basically dropped to zero efficacy against infection, maybe still some continued efficacy against more severe symptoms, although that we're, that, we're seeing that decline as well. Um, boosters are not a lot of, of help. Against Omicron, a third-dose booster of the mRNA brought you up to a peak of 37 efficacy, which is still well below the 50% threshold set by the FDA for authorization of a vaccine. So in other words, if we, if we actually tested, retested the vaccines again today against the variants currently in circulation, they would fail the FDA authorization threshold by a long shot. Uh, we're using vaccines that very quickly became obsolete with time and, and particularly with new variants that are um, increasingly escaping vaccine immunity, whereas natural immunity, because you're exposed to the entire virus, you're mm -hmm. forming forming a B cell antibody based and T cell uh, immune response to multiple different parts of that virus versus the vaccine where you're getting a response just to the spike protein. In fact, the spike protein on the original strain that's no longer in circulation. So 
infection-induced immunity is more broad-based, and so we've seen a, a much less decline against new variants, much less decline with time, because it's just harder for uh, it's harder for the vaccine to escape an immunity uh, that is um, kind of broader and more diverse. It's sort of I, I compare it to um, if you've ever tried, sh you know, shooting a, a moving target like a clay pigeon. If you shoot it with a rifle, you got one bullet and it's very easy to miss. If you shoot it with a shotgun that sprays, much easier to hit the target. Natural immunity is sort of like a, a more broad based shotgun. And what's happening with the vaccines is that they're narrowing our immunity and focusing it exclusively on one part of the virus and a part of the virus that we're not, not really seeing any longer, part of the virus that's changed and evolved very significantly since those vaccines were originally developed. So what happened to your lawsuit? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I mean, as you can imagine, the university didn't take too kindly to uh, the challenge to their policy. So the, the day after, I, we requested that the judge um, uh, issue a preliminary injunction against the policy to basically put a, put a hold on it until my case was adjudicated in court. That was a big ask. Um, the judge has to kind of determine even prior to fact finding and, and the trial process that you're likely to win. Uh, so he declined the request for a preliminary injunction. And the next day, the university um, put me on, uh, they call it investigatory leave. A month after that, they put me on unpaid suspension, uh, tried to restrict my ability uh, to work outside the university as well in an effort to sort of financially pressure me to resign. I resigned that my standing is weakened in my, in my case um, in federal court. And then uh, about a month and a half after that, they, they dismissed me. So, um, so I lost so how my much job. money does the University of California at Irvine get? Because the University of California at Davis is intricately involved with the yeah. um, the people who actually hunt for the coronaviruses to test them into the labs to find out if they're transmissible to humans to create a market for vaccines. How much money does Irvine get? Well, uh, it it's hard to know exactly. Um, mm -hmm. we, we know that there are certainly millions of dollars in clinical trials from uh, companies like Pfizer. So mm -hmm. all of the UCs have ongoing phase three uh, clinical trials that are largely or very frequently funded by pharmaceutical monies um, or by the NIH, which has clearly put its, put its weight behind these vaccines. We know that the NIH itself co-owns the patent on the Moderna vaccine, we know that the lipid nanoparticle uh, that basically is used in both of the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, was developed by someone at UC Irvine. The university holds on to their their the intellectual property of, of things that are developed. So Irvine is Irvine making money. Um, you don't know. Possibly. Uh, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. We've so we've requested some information for purposes of our uh, for purposes of our case. Some of that information has been released by the university. Some of that information isn't. Uh, so given the kind of legal status of my case, I'm not going to comment too much on, That's fine. you know, things that may end up coming out in trial. Uh, long story short, uh, I was making a constitutional claim based on the 14th Amendment. Uh, the judge in the district court didn't think that I had a constitutional claim. 
Um, and the reason that's significant is that if I'm making a constitutional claim that a constitutional right is being violated, the court has to apply a higher level of scrutiny, mm-hmm. which would allow for actually weighing the empirical evidence on natural immunity. Uh, the court applied a very low level of scrutiny known as a rational basis review. And under a rational basis review, basically all the university had to show was we had a, re- a, pu- a plausible public health reason why we have this policy. They don't have to show that their policy actually achieves the purpose for which it was instituted. They don't have to show that their policy is narrowly tailored. So, you know, the court or, says, well, or yeah. show that it failed. Or show that it failed. They just have to show that they had a plausible reason for it. It could, you know, potentially capture too many people, like not be necessary for people with natural immunity. So given that that rational basis review. That's interesting in terms of the the burden of proof. That's exactly right. Because because you could, it's like if, if it's a, cop case you stop a driver you think the guy's got a gun you pull a gun you shoot the person no that why would it be less burden for something like this when this vaccination could have killed you or injured you well that's i mean i I think that's a very important question and that's i that's why i think you know, we have we have to understand that when you're talking about bodily autonomy you are implicating Right. fundamental constitutional rights. And, you know, we can let the lawyers argue it out in terms of whether this should be a, a due process kind of claim or an equal protection kind of claim. Um, but uh, long story short, uh, so we didn't prevail at the district court level. We have appealed to the circuit court level because I do believe, and my lawyer agrees, and, and many legal scholars that have looked at my case, agree that there is a constitutional claim implicated, in which case the court needs to uh, have an intermediate or a strict level of scrutiny applied. And that will actually allow us to get into the science behind the policy and the the science behind my claim. And when that happens, the science is actually very clear. And it's only become more clear since I originally filed that case. The gap between infection-induced immunity and vaccine-induced immunity has only widened since I filed the court case in August. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's become more obvious that um, I'm, I'm the safest person to be around on campus in terms of infection and transmission. Um, so that's, that's where things currently stand with the case. So I left the university in December, uh, started a private practice uh, in, in Newport Beach. I'm doing some work with a couple of independent research institutes, a couple of think tanks, one of them in Washington, D.C., the Ethics and Public Policy Center, another one here in California called the Zephyr Institute. So I've, I've continued my research, my public policy, uh, public health related work, uh, my writing, my speaking and my clinical work. Uh, I will say, Christine, one thing that I do miss is that I was doing a lot of teaching and, and supervision of medical students and residents at the university. And uh, that's something that I haven't yet been able to sort of replicate outside of the university setting. So I don't regret my decision. I think it was the right thing to do. Um, and it's, you know, it's opened up new doors for me to explore some of my interests in, in other ways. But, um, but it was hard to leave in terms of saying goodbye to the students and residents that I was involved in their, you know, in their education. 
Well, it is hard. It, it, it is hard for people to stand up because sometimes you have you, you have to step outside of your comfort zone. When you, when you do that, some people get upset about it. But the one thing I do know, having done investigative journalism, including criminal investigations for decades, the longer the longer something wrong continues, the more you get the, the, the more you get the truth. You try to focus on it at the very beginning. It's it's a gut thing. It's a feeling. But the facts always come out over a longer period of time when a crime is committed. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And I, I believe that will happen in this case. I mean, it's it's really hard to hide death certificates forever. That's why that's why this all cause mortality is so important because it cuts through a lot of statistical noise. You know, we can argue about what caused the death. What was it, you know, was it with COVID or from COVID? Was this really mm -hmm. due to a vaccine or maybe it was some mm -hmm. other issue? But, mm -hmm. you know, you, 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 can't, you can't hide the bodies forever. Um, you know, the, and you can't, <laughs> there, there are certain statistics that just don't lie. And That's true. And, and, and there's also the testimony of the coroners now when they when they're when they're, they're in the corner when the bodies are in the coroner's office i mean you know they're, they're seeing things that they haven't necessarily seen before yeah yeah um in yeah. terms of blood clots that's why it's important to get these autopsies um mm -hmm. when you have a you know a sudden death uh, of an of an individual who otherwise looked healthy um you know that could be an important clue if there's a new if there's a new trend uh, that's emerging you know that begins with case case reports. Larger studies always begin, uh, quote unquote, anecdotally. Um, you know, that's, that's how research works in medicine. You start noticing a pattern, you, you know, people who are paying attention notice something that's unusual. They raise the issue. That early data is almost never definitive, but it's a signal that, okay, something may be going on here that requires more rigorous investigation. And then you move on from there. If those early safety signals are are suppressed or if people are vilified for raising those questions, then you never get to the next steps where you actually do the more rigorous investigations. And that's that's a very worrisome thing for the advancement of science and medicine. So, Dr. Aaron, you're a you're you're a bioethicist, you teaching ethics, you understand science. Um you have a clientele of, of uh patients who come to you for counseling right you you have patients who have been have traumatic experiences some of them even have schizophrenia what is your assessment of what the hell happened in 2020 and what the hell happened with these vaccine mandates in 2021 yeah. In 2020, I mean, this is a, I, I could spend the next three hours on an answer to this question. I will try to focus just on a few thoughts uh, mm -hmm. about this. The, the first thing that happened in 2020 was that we rolled out a novel method of governance and social control that had never been used before. Um, I guess the technical term for it was stay-at-home orders, but the more colloquial term lockdowns 
uh, is stay at home and, people, and turn your, until your lips turn blue. Well, yes, and stay at home even if your lips are not turning blue. So what was really novel about this was not the idea of quarantining the sick. Um, and you're you're referring to you know don't go seek early treatment until your lips turn blue. Mm-hmm. But what I'm talking about with lockdowns went be went beyond even that as as bad as that was that we we didn't offer people outpatient treatment and they had to wait until they couldn't breathe before they went into the hospital at which point they were put on a ventilator and remdesivir and had very high mortality um, afterwards. But what I'm talking about is this idea of quarantining healthy populations. The idea of everyone staying at home, whether or not they were symptomatic, has never been done before in the history of managing pandemics, ever. And pandemics are nothing new. So in, in early 2020, people keep kept talking about COVID is unprecedented. No, I'm sorry. COVID is not unprecedented. It may have been unprecedented in our lifetimes. But we have a major epidemic or a major worldwide pandemic every 100 years. And this one came right on schedule, like clockwork, about 100 years after the 1918 flu, uh, Spanish flu pandemic we can look at we can look at epidemics and pandemics going back in history all the way from you know the the hebrews of the old testament who uh who quarantined lepers Mm -hmm. to the the justinian plague in the late roman empire that many historians believe you know contributed to the fall of of rome was like likely a smallpox uh, epidemic people figured out and have known for literally thousands of years about quarantine and social distancing and actually having people who have recovered from an illness care for those who are sick because of you know they natural immunity basically mm-hmm. uh, we we didn't know the mechanisms of these infectious diseases we didn't understand viruses and bacteria but human beings figured out a lot of helpful public health measures to deal with these sorts of things but one thing that we have never ever done um, historically is quarantine healthy people. And the reason we haven't done it is because it doesn't work and it inflicts massive collateral damage. Um, well, if we knew that, why did, why, why did Dr. Briggs, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redwood and everybody else go along with this at the very beginning? Because so, this, this stay at home stuff started February, March of 2020. Yeah. And proposals even floating the idea of uh, stay at home orders started around the year 2000. Uh, they were very often uh, floated in the context of war gaming, uh, mm-hmm. biological terrorist attack right. type scenarios. So there, there was this, there was this process, um, which RFK Jr. talks about in the last chapter of his book on Fauci, of sort of emerging of um, the the intelligence, merging of the military intelligence industrial complex with public health and medicine that is really novel over the last 20 years. And these new models very often emerged in that context of that relied on sort of worst case scenario planning. And we saw that with the early mathematical models of that came out of Imperial College London, for example, Niall Ferguson's model, which turned out not just to miss the mark, but to be so wildly exaggerated. I mean, it was off by several orders of magnitude. You know, not just, oh, this guy missed the mark by 20 or 30 percent. It's like, right. (laughs) It was as as bad as the University of Washington's numbers. Right. Gates was funding. So we had this worst case scenario disaster planning 
that terrified people quite understandably you know there's going to be you know millions of americans people dying dying in the streets and so forth and i mean i was worried about hospitals getting overrun in the early days as well you know because we were seeing what was coming out of lombardy out of northern italy nobody was talking about the fact that actually those hospitals get overrun with influenza you know, the last couple of years, you know, on a seasonal basis, because they're grossly underfunded. It's like all, all of that was just totally ignored. Um, the fact that their medical infrastructure had been so weakened was totally ignored. Um, and so we got into this mindset that there's going to be scarcity. And I, I was I was working through worst case scenarios as we were developing our triage policy. And none of us wanted to think about, you know, running out of ventilators. So that that was scary. Ventilators, was ventilators were not the were not the right treatment to begin with. It well, should have yeah. been blood centers. I mean, that, yeah, there there were actually. I mean, how, how, did, how did people get it? Were, the the thing we ran out of first was blood because people were too afraid to go give blood because they were all staying at home. Um, so we created certain shortages by our own policies that ended up being more problematic than. I mean, there was a there was a time where they were sending doctors and nurses home because there was no one coming to the outpatient clinics because people were too afraid to go get medical care. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think what happened was there were economic and political interests that benefited from lockdowns. So if you just follow the money, you don't have to get conspiratorial about this. You just say, look, OK, what happened economically mm -hmm. during the lockdowns? Well, a lot of people were harmed but 200,000 small businesses in the United States went under. Most of those have not returned, um, but there was a massive transfer of wealth from the working class and the middle class, not just to the upper class, but to a, a very small number of tech elites in the upper class. Um, so that the, the very top earners, um, both in terms of tech corporations and individuals um, made a trillion dollars basically during 750 billion during the um, during the lockdowns. Amazon, which has its headquarters in Seattle, lobbied West Coast states to lock down Washington, mm -hmm. Oregon, California. Is that because Amazon had some special knowledge of public health or viruses or pandemics? No, because um, they just benefit from it. Look what happened to their stocks, right? You eliminate competition because I can't, you know, the local guy is shut down during lockdowns. And um, I'm, I'm at home, but I need goods. So I'm going to order them online. So the big box, Amazon, the other big box stores that were capable of that kind of delivery and infrastructure made a killing and the little guys got squashed. So this was th this was actually an, an economic policy. Um, it was kind of a class warfare <laughs> policy masquerading as a public health policy. The public health effects of lockdowns were absolutely disastrous. Um, I began to see this three or four weeks into the lockdowns when I was seeing patients in clinic that were let's literally talk, let's frozen talk with terror, uh, let's, I mean, let's crippled by anxiety. About, let's right? talk about the chronology here of when you're seeing patients yeah. in 2020 and the mirror of what's going on outside of that room. Yeah. So it was two weeks to flatten the curve, right? That was right. in March 2020. Right. Three or four weeks into that i'm thinking this seems like a long two weeks little little did i know just how long it would continue but yeah we were i was getting patients who, who were not psychotic not 
not delusional or, or paranoid in the technical psychiatric sense, but who literally, nonetheless, literally thought that the apocalypse was here. You know, they were glued to CNN four or five hours a day, um, overwhelmed with anxiety. And I, it became clear to me within a month that, you know, we, got, we have to stop. This is, this is not good. Uh, our hospitals were not being overwhelmed. I mean, March turned into April, April turned into May, and the hospital is still empty. Not only are there no visitors because they're not allowed, but there's no patients either. We didn't have the influx of COVID patients until late summer. When we locked down again for the second time, so we loosened restrictions in California, clamped down again mm -hmm. the second time, I could see all the metrics at all the UCs, which five hospitals, major hospitals scattered throughout the state, a pretty good sampling of where we're, we were at in California. We were at 15 to 20% ventilator capacity when we locked down again. And it was, so it became clear to me at that point, this is not about saving hospitals. This is not about making sure the healthcare system isn't overrun. Uh, it's got nothing to do with that because we're not overrun. We're doing fine. Yeah, we're, there were periods, obviously, where we're busy caring for COVID patients and, you know, we have to think about staffing and so forth. But, um, you know, thank goodness we were nowhere near having to, to allocate scarce resources or use our, our triage type policies. Um, so we had this disaster planning. And when it became clear that those models were wildly off, Mm -hmm. In a rational functioning society that had adopted a, a wildly miscalculated model as a basis for public policy, we would have recognized, okay, you can test this model against empirical reality. And when it's not, when it's, it's making predictions, when its predictions are not coming true, that means it's a bad model and we should abandon it. We should rethink the policies that were based on that model. So another clue that there was something else going on with lockdowns, that they were more about uh, power and control and certain economic interests than they were about public health was that we, we never reconsidered them uh, in the face of uh, evidence that they were unnecessary in the face of mounting evidence that they were harmful. So by October, I was fed up. I published a piece called the other pandemic mm -hmm. uh, October of 2020 in public discourse where I described the mental health crisis that had been created not by the virus, but by our response to the virus. People keep kept talking at that time that, you know, COVID is making us depressed and suicidal and we're drinking more. No, it wasn't, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the virus. It was the lockdowns. It was our failed pandemic policy and response. It was no certainty. People had no well, certainty. They changed their mind. They pivoted. I mean, you know, when you have chaos in the room, the devil's doing his, his dance. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you also had a cohort of, of, well, I mean, we had politicians that were dodging their responsibilities, claiming to hide behind the experts, but they were only listening to one cohort of experts, people looking at COVID case curves. They weren't looking people, at people, people that were going to benefit from putting the fear of God or yeah, the devil right. into people uh, and, and, and pushing themselves the only answer. I mean, my, we know my, that my pivot here was deliberately was, deployed. It was right, not my, accidental. Right. But I think I think my and everybody has their epiphany when they get over to the other side and they realize that something's wrong with this picture. Mine was when it went from a health issue and then it was a lockdown that was going to make economic issues. There was no early treatment. 
The nurses are telling me we're killing people. This is all the spring of 2020. The nurses I'm talking to across the country are telling me that this is the wrong treatment. We're killing people. The early treatment guys looking for money at the same time are telling me that they should. everybody should be on blood thinners, antioxidants, all right? And then it became, by June, Vax is the only answer. Yeah. Which, which to somebody like me, who's been in the war zones, when they say war is the only answer, that's when you realize this is, this is not, this is, this is a money game. And I don't mean game, I mean gain, G-A-I-N. This was a money game. Well, the, the lockdowns were clearly bound up with the mass vaccination campaign because mm -hmm. the, the, the secret hope is we can lock down. They weren't saying it very clearly at the time. Oh, um, no, because Fauci would but, never answer the question directly. When, when Jordan asked him how many people need to be vaccinated, if, he, if Fauci had told the truth, he would have said seven billion people. He couldn't say that yeah. because that would be too clearly transparent to the intended goal. It was always about achieving immunity. And so his multiple lies and denying that natural immunity was stronger than stronger than a vaccination. I mean, you know, I don't even have to have a science degree to, to understand how stupid a statement that is. But what yeah, is, it's, what, it's what never is, been the case that vaccines are superior to natural immunity. Right. Um, it doesn't make biological sense that they would be because they're designed to mimic as best they can right. the body's immune response to the virus, but they can never <laughs> quite achieve, you know, the same level of immunity. Uh, it doesn't mean they're useless. Um, you know, the, the ones that work well are important tools. These, unfortunately, were not sterilizing vac vaccines. They didn't stop infection and transmission, and their efficacy was quite short-lived. And they're the not efficacy of boosters is even more short-lived. And there are serious emerging safety issues. So they, the, they're, the not even, didn't. they're not even vaccines. I mean, this is this is like the Catholic Church defense attorneys using the words inappropriate touching when it was really raping a child. Yeah. And calling these vaccines when they're not akin to the traditional vaccines, they're gene therapy at best or experimental therapies. Yeah, that's so they right. Were, that was it was it was fraudulently sold as an apple, but it was really an orange. Yeah, that's right. Part of the fruit family, but a different fruit. I, I mean, it's very clever how this happened. But what happened to the medical community? What happened to the scientific? What happened to ethics in the in medicine? I wish I had a good answer to that question. Uh, I was I was alarmed that more people were not alarmed. Um, I was concerned that psychiatrists weren't raising their hands and talking more openly about what we were seeing um, during the lockdowns. I've been very concerned uh, that more physicians aren't speaking up clearly in terms of what are their what, what they're seeing in clinic um, with these vaccines. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of factors at work. I mean, one simple answer to that question is, well, you know, look at what happened to me. <laughs> um, you, you stick your neck above the 
parapet or you you step out of uh, the mainstream narrative that was being pushed and you attempt to challenge it, um, there were potentially very serious professional consequences for doing that. And understandably, you know, most folks don't have the stomach for that. And, and, you know, in their defense, people also have responsibilities, right? They have, they have to take that's care of their an, I think that's an excuse, Aaron. I think that's an excuse. I really do. I, I think this is such a pivotal time in history that if people, anybody that sits on the bench is complicit. Well, um, I'm sympathetic to your view. Um, I really believe that anybody that sits on the bench is complicit because what is going on is criminal. Yeah. I think that, that uh, people need to realize that you're not going to, you know, there's only one thing to fear. And that's when you meet the face of God and God says to you, I put the evidence before you. And what did you do? Yeah. Well, we can't fear the truth. I mean, a physician, a scientist um, has to has to be able to admit I was wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, my own thinking has evolved. I'm, I'm happy to talk about mistakes that I made early on, you know, things I published that I sort of regret the language I used that, the, you know, I embraced the military metaphor early on, you know, in a piece called Battlefield Promotions that was kind of a call to action to medical students. Uh, I think those martial metaphors were misplaced in terms of our pandemic response. So I, I made mistakes too, that I regret. Um, I think that's okay. You know, rapidly evolving situations, a lot of unknowns, we're gonna make mistakes, but, well, that's, but then we that's... have to be able to say, okay, wait a minute, let's reel this in. Let's rethink this. Mm -hmm. And if you if you have people in positions of authority or leadership or advisory positions that um, instead of admitting that they may have been wrong, instead just double down or triple down on the same failed solution, that that's a serious abdication of responsibility. But unfortunately, I, I think unfortunately we have a leadership class that, you know, there's just many, many people who will never ever admit that they were wrong, you know, it, even in the well, face it's of pretty overwhelming not, evidence. It's one thing not to admit that you're wrong. It's a whole nother thing uh, as evidenced in Collins and Fauci's emails yeah. that were um, released under pressure, meaning the you know, freedom of information. And in those that they wanted to kill the messengers. Yeah. And the medical boards have gone after the doctor's licenses. Yeah and people are losing their jobs in the medical field if they speak up because their treatment, because they do not want to give the wrong treatment because they're witnessing the wrong treatment, treatment being administered in the ICUs and people are dying. So they don't want to be complicit in murder. I mean- Science, this, this science is, is absolutely incompatible with censorship. And so medical advances is, is absolutely incompatible. Is that accepted in, at the medical ethic, ethics, the bioethics board? I mean- Somehow during the pandemic that got tossed overboard that if you raised questions or if you challenged you know, particular proposals, you were, you were dangerous because you were gonna, you know, your, your, your hesitancy or your skepticism was gonna cost people their lives. So that was used as a kind Who of came bludgeon. up with that? 
Was that Kristen Brady, Fauci's wife? No, well, seriously. look, I mean, that's, that's been part seriously. of the broader culture. That's been pro- part of the broader culture over the last couple of, of decades is this embrace of the idea um, that's, that, that ideas are, are, are not just that ideas are dangerous, but people holding certain ideas are dangerous and need to be steamrolled rather than actually engaging uh, their ideas on their own terms and, and arguing. So, you know, this, if you, if you lack the assumption of a kind of a shared rationality and a shared pursuit of truth, then, um, you know, it just becomes ideological warfare. And I think people were primed for that. I mean, this whole sort of cancel culture uh, phenomenon that we've seen, you know, developing over the last uh, decade or so has clearly infected science and medicine as well. And it, it played a huge role in the way in which the pandemic response unfolded and the way in which dissenting uh, opinions were silenced. Um, but I mean, that's, that spells the end of science. If you get real scientists together, they do nothing but argue with one another, like amicably, but mm-hmm. you know, they sit down and they hash out the data and science is about conjecture and refutation and hypothesis and disconfirmation and data and you know, interpretation of data. And so, you know, we're used to having reasoned disagreements with one another all the time but somehow people became convinced that in this particular social climate if you do that uh you're engaged in something very dangerous and you know people there was a lot of fear and 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 people 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 that's because because the leadership rationality under under conditions of um fear and um in in a climate of of censorship and bullying sadly but that's because it it became the leadership allowed the demonization of anybody that disagrees the leadership okay the media cooperated big tech cooperated um, because they all medical institutions cooperated Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a yeah, there was a lot of money at, at work. Well, there was I mean, a lot of money at stake. I mean, you know, people keep on talking about uh, you know big tech and censorship and cancel. For God's sakes, pharma's been putting advertising, yeah. you know, drugs and and all over tech for the last twenty years. So they're actually in par- in partnership, the same way that now we have the we you know I can remember in the nineteen eighties when the first drug ads went on television. It was 1997. 19, that's when, 19, it, that's 19, when it started. No, no 1983. 82, 83 is when they put the first drug, the first drug ad on television in the United States was in the 1980s. Okay. But the, the, the intranet became the wild west for a new common market for that. And we were yeah. the only country in the world that had ads on television for a long period of time. Then it was New Zealand. But then when the internet took off to everybody's home, that became another platform for them to be on. I mean, we, we have become also pharmaceutically addicted here in the United States yeah. where we have over 70, 70, 75% of people on prescription. So we believed in the medical divinity of the white coat, but we also didn't understand, I think that what we were culturally addicted to was pharmaceuticals and listening to yeah. doctors. 
Yeah, and, and, and authority. And then the elevation of the office of the presidency becoming the voice of the dictated, to, dictating to people about their, their medical his, their medical conditions. I, I mean, the whole thing seemed to be out of a, a bad B movie in some ways. But when people showed up in your office as former as clients that you had a relationship with clinically, did you see a change in them? Oh yeah. Over time, can you share some of what you saw? Well, as I said, in 2020, people were suffering a lot. You know, we saw huge spikes in depression, anxiety, drug and alcohol abuse. We had an opioid crisis. Remember, we had an opioid crisis prior to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the year 2000, there were less than 20,000 deaths by drug overdose a year, which is a lot, tragic number, right? But by 2018, 2019, that was about 70,000. That was, that was the worst drug crisis in American history. That number last year was 100,000. So we took that opioid crisis and we poured more gasoline on that fire with lockdowns. Uh, alcohol-related deaths also went up. 29 percent in 2020 uh they're close to 100,000 now as well so 200,000 deaths by drug and alcohol uh overdose a, a, a year and right. we and somebody wants to call this a success story right exactly you're not hearing those numbers reported on the news but we're seeing those numbers in the in the psychiatric clinics um i've seen people suffering under the the vaccine mandate regime as well. I mean, there's one, I had one patient who uh, went to his rheumatologist and the specialist, specialist told him, you know, because of your autoimmune condition, I don't think you should get the COVID vaccine. I think it'll, the risks don't outweigh the, uh, or the benefits don't outweigh the risks. Same patient turned to the same doctor and said, okay, can you write me a medical exemption? Because I need one for work. They're mandating it. Same doctor that just told him not to get the shot said, I'm sorry, I can't do that because I'm afraid I might lose my medical license. So, that, you know, this is the climate that we've created for, um, for patients. And it's um, what I'm seeing now is many, many people who simply do not trust the medical profession. They don't trust medical institutions. Uh, they don't trust most doctors. Right. Um, they certainly don't trust our public health establishment that's that's i understand why they don't um those institutions have not earned our trust in the last two years but that's also only going to harm patients in the end as well i mean if you need medical care you you should be able to go seek it out from a trustworthy physician and when we squander that trust as we have done uh during the pandemic that's gonna have that's gonna that's gonna have collateral damage you know that that will continue for years, decades, maybe. Or it, or it may be an opportunity. It may be an opportunity for the medical industry to clean up its act. Because well, so. this is not because this this um, is not in recent years that doctors have been brought before the medical boards. This has been going on for a long period of time, and especially yeah. in California, the doctors yeah. in California have been hard hit by medical boards. 
Um, but this has been a concerted effort. I mean, this is th t now this makes sense to me why the Obama administration wanted to mandate health care. Because if you really take a look at it, would you really choose it if you really got underneath it and you figured out that, you know, there is a level of corruption and payoff and money and bribery and coercion? I don't think so. So I, I, in some ways, this is it's been horrific. But in another ways, it's an opportunity if people wake yeah. up and if other doctors like yourself are yeah. willing to step out to create a new space so that you all in your profession you you get your your sense of respect back because I yeah no I think and and, and, and right. I say this I say this self admittingly because I'm a journalist I, I you know I, having worked for four networks I I wish that we had done our jobs better I couldn't do what I'm doing reporting on COVID at any network I worked for right right couldn't do it couldn't do it for some of the papers that I've written for. Um, because people, I mean, the fact that I had to put and, and, and I mean, when I found the Vax injured and then I had to talk them into going on camera to give them a voice, I mean, God love them, you know, and many of them weren't ready for, for camera ready, you know, initially because they were so traumatized. Yeah. And so many of them were in the healthcare industry. That's why they signed up for the clinicals or that's why they signed up for the early rollouts. And then when they became injured, they have, they're in despair over their physical ailments. At the same time, they're doubly in despair because of how they have been treated in an industry where they treated their patients with respect. And now they're getting, they're, they're, they're realizing how broken the, the, yeah. the healthcare system is treated as though they don't exist or they're crazy. Well, that's true. That's true. In one, in one case, there was a, a woman who actually was somebody put her into a psychiatric ward. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, it, because this was all in her head as her body's trembling and, and, and going into convulsions. So right now you're involved with the defeat the mandates in California on April 10th. What's the message and the takeaway, doctor, that you want people to get on April 10th yeah. and before? I mean, what what what's the what is the, the most concerning horizon? I'm concerned that yeah, the state of emergency, the declared state of emergency has continued indefinitely. It's never never been clearly defined what the threshold for the state of emergency should be. Um so the state of emergency needs to end. The extra constitutional powers that were arrogated by governors, public health officials, both at the state and the federal level need to be relinquished immediately. Um, that's the first thing. There are 10 bills in California set to advance a biomedical security regime right. Right. with right. increased intrusions on privacy, on bodily autonomy, on the right of informed consent, taking away parents' rights of informed consent on behalf of their children. Those 10 bills, which you can learn about if you go to the Unity Project website, they have a, they have a page specifically devoted to this and what you can do about it. I posted uh, on this recently on my Substack just the other day. Um, those bills need to be defeated. California is a bellwether. It's kind of the tip of the spear when it comes to 
the trends that you know will be rolled out in other in other states if they succeed in California. So uh, I, at the California, at the mandate remember, rally, we've got to focus on that. And California, as I remember, and I can't remember if it's the first, but it was one of the first states where they um, the state legislature denied religious exemptions. Right. And then it was, I think, I can't remember the order, but New York, Maine, New York, Connecticut. Yeah. So, but I think, was California the first state? I believe that it was. And I believe New York uh, came came afterwards. Okay. But yeah, for ordinary routine childhood vaccinations, you cannot get a religious really? exemption. And they've made it almost impossible to get a medical exemption in California as well by bullying any physician who writes more than five of those a year. So mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a really repressive climate in California when it comes to uh, parental rights and right of informed consent and the right of physicians to exercise appropriate clinical judgment and discretionary latitude. All of those things have been squeezed by um, a legis state legislature that seems to be in the back pocket of big pharma. What, what about the, uh, the level of monetary corruption among all these um, polit state politicians that are passing these laws? Has anybody done a really good story on that out there? Um, there have been I, I, here and there. You can read about you know one or another particular politician and look at you know the, the contributions that are made. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, in terms of in the aggregate, I think that's probably a good project for an intrepid investigative reporter just to see how you know some of the states like California where certain pharmaceutical interests have been able to get more or less whatever they want. Right. Um, you know, it, it follow, follow the money is a pretty good, pretty good way for an investigative journalist to unpack. Um, that's, that, that's like that. what, that's what we do. That's what yeah. we do. We look at, we look at where the ATM machine is and, and, and the public should be concerned. They should I agree. be concerned. So Aaron, good luck to you. Thank you, uh, on, on April 10th, please come back and, and anytime, you know, as, Happy to do so. as your case moves forward or you see observations or you think that people need to know about X, Y, and Z, because I think it's really important for doctors like you to be acknowledged and to be given a voice. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate this conversation. I do too. I do too. Thank you.